welcome to the Line Break Podcast. My name is Chris Corlew, and with me as always is my friend and co-host, Bob Sikora. Hi, Chris. Hey, Bob. How's it going today? Pretty good this morning. Feeling good. pretty good. good this morning. You know what? I'm feeling pretty good this morning, too. Bob, we've had a lot of guests on the show, um, all of whom are writers I admire. Uh, I can say this is legitimately the first time I've been like legitimately starstruck, <laughs> um, and that is because today we are joined by Jose Olivares. Jose is the son of Mexican in- immigrants. His debut book of poems, Citizen Illegal, was a finalist for the Penn Gene Stein Award and a winner of the t- 2018 Chicago Review of Books Poetry Prize. It was named a top book of 2018 by the Adroit Journal, NPR, and the New York Public Library. Along with Felisa Chavez, Felicia Chavez and Willie Perdomo, he co-edited the poetry anthology The Breakbeat Poets, Volume 4, Latin Next. He is the co-host of the poetry podcast, The Poetry Gods. In 2018, he was awarded the first annual Author and Artist in Justice Award from the Phillips Brooks House Association and named a debut poet of 2018 by Poets and Writers. In 2019, he was awarded a Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Poetry Fellowship from the Poetry Foundation. His work has been featured in the New York Times, the Paris Review, and elsewhere. His second book, Promises of Gold, was published in 2023 and translated by David Ruano Gonzalez. It was called Brilliant and Moving by Electric Lit. The Chicago Reader praised it by saying, white people have Emily Dickinson, Mexicans have Jose Olivares. And some asshole with a blog and the podcast you're listening to said the book's mission to write a book of love poems for the homies may be the noblest mission in poetry. Jose, welcome to the line welcome. break. Welcome. Dang. Thank you for having me. What's up, y'all? Oh, what a thrill. <laughs> what a joy. Um, how are you feeling? You, uh, we, we, we talked off mic. Um, your new book just came out a couple months ago, and you are, you are already hard at work writing. Um, just churning them out, man. How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm feeling good. I I'm writing the thing I'm not supposed to be writing. I'm I'm supposed to be writing a novel, but uh I'm kind of working my way towards it by writing what's more familiar to me. So I I started writing some poems just to have fun. You know, as we're recording, it's the middle of the NBA playoffs. So I was like, what if I try to write some basketball poems? So uh, you know, just just kind of going where the writing takes me right now. Nice, nice. I do love the work on a different project than the one that's due. Procrastination method. It's very familiar to me. Yeah, it's it's my go-to move. Yeah. <laughs> and we are also, we are recording in the middle of the playoffs. This will come out in June, so preemptive congratulations to Jimmy Butler on his finals MVP. Come on! <laughs> Speak it into existence. I'm, I'm so glad uh, Poetry Gods popped up uh, in the bio still, because I think, you know, a lot of times with the poet I admire, I can think of like their writing voice being in my head. But Jose, you are one of those poets where because I was a I was a ardent poetry gods listener, I have this like very vivid memory of like being in a bus. I was in grad school in Boston, riding the bus, hearing poetry gods for the first time and being like, oh, where has this been? I've needed this for so long. So your voice like echoes in my head still. Um, I'm very grateful for that. I love that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I, you know, for me, the Poetry Gods was my, like, graduate school. I didn't go yeah. to get an MFA in poetry. And so talking to John and Aziza and all of our guests was really how I was able to, like, purposefully investigate the craft of writing. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to No MFA Gang. I'm with you, man. <laughs> hey, let's go. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about before we get into the poems, um, the uh, the impetus to have promises of gold um, with the uh, translated version on the side of it, on the flip side of it. Um, I really love when books are that way, even though I only speak English because I'm a loser. Um, uh, what was? Uh, can you talk a little bit about the uh, impetus behind that and how um, uh, how you and um, how you and David got in touch in that whole process? Yeah, I've known David for a few years now. We met in 2019 as part of the Liddy Luce Festival, which is like an art festival that brings together writers from Mexico City and Chicago to collaborate. Um, so every year they do one show in Chicago and then they run it back in Mexico City in the spring. Oh, that's so sick. 
And so I got to participate. And when I traveled to Mexico City, David reached out and was like, hey, a couple of places are interested in having you, like, do appearances and read poems. You know, is it okay if I translate a couple of your poems for you so that you can read them in Spanish as well? So I said, yes, my poems had never been translated into Spanish. And I just really loved what he did with the translation. So that was maybe the first seed. The second seed was, as part of my work, I visit with um, with a lot of different schools, and in particular schools where there's like a bilingual population. And so I remember in particular going to Los Angeles, and during the day I read poems for the students, and then in the evening they had me run a bilingual poetry workshop for the students and the parents together. And afterwards, the parents who wrote these really beautiful and moving poems, they were like, you know, thank you so much. Like, I didn't know how much I needed to write a poem. Um, And also, like, I'm kind of, you know, they didn't say upset, but they were like, I'm kind of upset that, uh, you know, my children get to read your poems, but we can't read along with them because we only read and write in Spanish. And so for me, I just, I was just like, why, why publish that way? If Mm. like, if, if that's who I'm trying to reach out to when it is, then how can I make it actually available to them in ways that are most useful? And so um, when it came time to publish promises of gold, that was something that I talked to a few different editors about when, when I was trying to kind of figure out where I wanted to publish. So uh, they were all enthusiastic, and that was really where where that story begins. Wow. I love it. I love it, man. I love it. Yeah, um, one of my favorite books is um, a Song for His Disappeared Love by Raul uh, Zurita, um, which is like that. That's the first book I ever saw it published that way. And I I, I think, I don't know, I've, I've been trying to learn Spanish for 20 years now. <laughs> and uh, it's, a, um, it's, it's just cool to, like, be able to read a poem, flip to the back, read it right. again in a different language. That's awesome. And the fact that it was born out of that connection with like the, the, the Chicago, Mexico city connection and the going to workshops and schools. That's awesome, man. That's so cool. Yeah. Everything about that is so cool. <laughs> um, how are you, you know, generally feeling? So we're like right at two months out. Um, I'm so curious about, you know, like that relationship between the first book, the second book, um, having a little bit more creative control over the second book, doing things like that. Um, I don't know. I, you know, like, like you said, it's, it's, it's so impressive and exciting that you're like, I'm moving on to the next thing. And the next thing maybe is a novel. Um, but I don't know. How does that two months out from the book being out in the world feel? It feels really good. It's also, how do I put it? I mean, it's been really exciting. I, I just got done with, um, touring so i was on the road pretty much all of february march and april so to get a chance to to kind of get some rest has been really nice and to get a chance to talk to readers and hear you know what poems connected with them and what their takeaways were and what they're kind of sitting with has been really good for me it's also i don't know i thought i would be a little more practiced about this because it is my second book, but it it still kind of feels brand new and scary at the same time. So I've just been really excited that, you know, it seems like people really are enjoying the poems and um, yeah, it's been cool to kind of get to talk to people about them. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really great book listeners. uh, I also, I just did a 30 for 30 reading challenge in April and it was my favorite top three. Of the three, thirty I read, um, it was it's the promises of gold. Get promises of gold. Bob, did you have anything else? Should we move into the uh, the first poem? Let's move into the poem. Let's do you it. You brought man. a poem for us. You brought a poem for us. So yeah, we uh, you know we always ask guests to bring a, a poem by someone else to read. Uh, Jose, what'd you bring today? Today I brought the poem "Family Portrait with Enchiladas and a Movie" by Analicia Sotelo. Picture this. My heart as thick, my heart as thick orange as manteca as we turn on Twister for what has to be the 16th time since 1996. And my parents are tired of it now, but I really begged for it for the sake of tradition. Helen and Bill embarrassingly in love, 
the wind turning in circles like the witch is at it again. The Philip Seymour Hoffman witch, with hair like her beside wheat fields and a ceremonious voice that slices right through metal. When we have enchiladas for dinner, I can't help it. I have two, then three, then four and a half servings with rice and even the beans swimming in their curls of gelatinous bacon and comino. Each piece hangs in the stew like a comma, like a coconut, Dad says, of my eating habits. But I had to save room for cheese, piled high and sharp, melting right into my personal nostalgia. Meanwhile, I will celebrate enchiladas, those mounds of earth going straight to the confused gut, the gut with no country. Doesn't Alexa Vega, the light-skinned Latina from Spy Kids, play the Oklahoma girl who sees her father ascend the F5 god, later played by Helen? Her hair is like my sister's, a sweet golden brown that confuses people. But she's the first to rant about white privilege at dinner, swinging her fork around like a, like a squall until you're at one end of the table only to end up at the other, exactly like a helpless cow. Growing up, dad would turn on the surround sound as we took cover under the colchas, an average storm outside, our apartment small but sonically ambitious. And the threat, not exactly there, but there all the same. We've never forgotten what could have happened and could still happen at any time and with no warning, sending us right into that Midwestern debris where the basements are filled with strange blank faces that rise heavy as spoonfuls on spoonfuls of bodies. Does nature think we're in the way? Or is it trying to solve a curiosity? Have we been chased into the eye of the eye, the fat luxury of the eye? God. That's a poem. What a last line. Man. What a last stanza. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, and the reason <laughs> that we like to just get into reading the poem is because we find when we're just doing this the two of ourselves is we often like just gush so much before we even started reading the poem that <laughs> we got to just get the poem out of the way before we can talk about it and like what a oh, this poem's loaded <laughs> yeah. so, so I guess uh, the, the opening question is just, is just uh, why did you choose to bring this poem today? Yeah, I was thinking about what poem to bring. And I mean, there's so many poems I love, but um, I don't know. Something, something in my heart kind of pulled me toward this poem by Analicia. It's a poem, you know, that was published after Analicia's first book. Mm-hmm. Um and it, I think part of what I admire of this about this poem is that it it feels to me like a strong departure from the first move, and there's something very I don't know if the word is I don't want to say brave, but it, it's just like it's so exciting to me to see an artist, you know, write the hell out of a book and then and then kind of jump even further and in an exciting and different way. You know what I mean? And so this feels like such a big departure that it's just, it's a reminder that as artists, we can always kind of reinvent ourselves. And so maybe I thought about this poem in part because I am at the end of a project and thinking about what's next and um, procrastinating about, you know, the novel (laughs) that I have to write. So I think part of it, you know, where all of those things playing in my subconscious, but I'm, you know, the other part is I'm a sucker for poems that that treat nostalgia with rigor, yeah. and this one is is filled Ooh. with nostalgia. But it's it, it, it's not as sweet as it seems. There's all of these kind of um, sharp edges to this poem. Whether it's uh, you know, the threat that Analicia hints at again and again, or, you know, the differences with her sister and 
and how she's still ranting about white privilege and you know it's just or even like the dad taking a small shot and yeah. the wordplay of like a comma like a coconut dad says of my eating habits so there's all of these sharp edges the nostalgia is not not as safe as it appears even though it's loaded with nostalgia yeah 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 i love that yeah nostalgia treated with rigor is is a great I'm, way to describe this poem. i've been thinking about that for a while That's, yeah because yeah. like yeah I, I don't know i had like a I had like a VHS of Twister that like we could play on like a little tiny like TV that my mom put in the back of the minivan for road trips, you know? So like when I think of Twister, I don't, I think of watching it on a shitty TV <laughs> um, and like, yeah, just the, this is not like your golden tinted, you know, uh, happy memory. This is just this, this is, there's happiness here, but there's like edges and rigor. Like you said. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot there. Uh, Twister's got to be on the late 90s, early 2000s, like that time frame, VHS, all-time classic. You know, like, like every one of us had a, had a VHS copy of Twister, yeah. for sure. Like Twister and Independence Day were like two yes. of the... <laughs> Independence Day, I remember. I don't know if I've ever seen Twister. I feel like I must have, but I it's been so long, I don't fully remember all of it. I, other than like, the cow in the yes. in the yeah. in the twister, right? Like I remember that. I would say that that's it just kind of seared into my brain. <laughs> that's part of the key is I definitely saw that movie young enough where like that's the only memory I have. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I know the actors that the poem's referring to, but like yeah, beyond that, it's the cow and the it's the cow and the uh <laughs> the twister. Um I love how the the movie kind of blends into like that threat you were talking about a little bit with yeah. like the sending us right in the Midwestern debris where the basements are filled with strange, strange blank faces. Like I love how this nostalgia of a movie also blends into a real world threat. That's a just a sick thing about this poem. Yeah. No, I, I think of how, I don't know. I, I teach Jose. So I, I always kind of have the teacher brain on sometimes. And I think of how, I have students or I have like people that I, I, I work with in terms of writing who, who, you know, like love a pop culture reference, love to do some of the pop culture. And I love the way that like, yes, Twister is at least for me, this really great entry point in the poem, but like, it's not just like casually in there, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's contributing to this like bigger thing that's happening, that threat that you're talking about, um, you know, kind of the, the way that, nostalgia and particularly like nostalgia about your family is never like easy and simple that there's this uh oh i can't find the word right now but it is it's, it's hanging over this poem um and uh, i guess i'm like in twister country right now we don't we don't we don't get tornadoes quite in kansas city but like they're close by mm -hmm. i know so our second question that we like to ask about the poems is um getting deeper into the poem What's the move in the poem? What's the thing that the writer does that really is uh, gets you going? I think for me, the move with this poem is the ending of it. Mm -hmm. Looking at the last two stanzas, uh, I mean, maybe even a little bit further up, right? Beginning with the part that you read, sending us right into that Midwestern debris where the basements are filled with strange blank faces that rise heavy as spoonfuls on spoonfuls of bodies. Does nature think we're in the way? Like that turn, does nature think we're in the way? Yeah. Or yeah. is it trying to solve a curiosity? Have we been chased into the eye of the eye, the fat luxury of the eye? God, yeah. There's like, so much in those lines. Yeah, like I just keep kind of sitting with those words and it, it kind of it's stunning to me that we end up here when yeah. you know we begin with enchiladas and twister and we end and I'm, i just kind of keep asking me the questions that the poem is asking does nature think we're in the way or is it trying to solve a curiosity have we been chased into the eye of the eye the fat luxury of the eye like the fat luxury of the eye yeah. I don't I don't I think part of why it's the move for me is because I don't even 
know how to comprehend that entirely. You know, like it just, it just. Yeah, we it, start the poem with Twister, and I'm left wondering if humanity is a mistake. <laughs> and also, I mean, have we been chased into the eye of the eye? Like we think about the eye of the storm as being a place of to recover from the storm, but here right. it becomes. It's like not where you want to be. It's like now you're cornered. Now, you know, you, it, you're in the fat luxury of the eye, but there's something new, you know, once again dangerous about being in that position. Right. It's almost like you have to go, you, you got in the eye, and then you still, have to, you still have another side of the storm across almost kind of thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, uh, to, stretch, to stretch into cheesy ways. Um, yeah, it's a great last couple stanzas. Absolutely. Oh. The repetitions killer there. I'm I'm so with you. Like I'm gonna sit on the luxury. I'm, I gotta read it again. The fat luxury of the eye. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then you know, here's another thing I love about this poem, mm-hmm. which is in. Well, I don't want to count the stanzas, but in the stanza again. that begins, <laughs> "Ascend the F5 God," later played by Helen, like. The punctuation of a question mark and an exclamation point. I love I I love it because you know I feel like exclamation points there's so little in poetry that mm-hmm. is that feels kind of outside respectability at this point. Yeah. But yeah. but exclamation points can still feel a little like I don't really see them too much in poetry. And so nah. here to have that combination, like it just it just feels like such a confident poem to me. It feels like mm-hmm. a writer that is like so fully coming into their voice that you can't help but but yeah, but like I, I really love this poem. Yeah, I feel like with the uh with the question mark exclamation point, I can hear it, you know? Like I can hear <laughs> I can hear like the person looking up the IMDb page and like interjecting, you know, in the middle of the stanza almost, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, and the exclamation point does that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Or something too about like, I don't know, the way like as a kid you get so excited about something. And I, I just could see that of like, you know, this came out certainly before Spy Kids, but that moment where you're like, oh my gosh, that's her from Spy Kids. And like that level of enthusiasm that could come up while doing something like this. Yeah. So I, and I think that is like so true of this poem. It, we could go <laughs> so many little things like that. I agree with that idea of like that confidence. Um, I, there's something about the way... It's something in the movement. It's something in the, like, the diction that this poem, I guess this gets into, Chris, you know, you've heard me say this a million times. I'm just like, this is another poem where I'm just like, not a single word, not a single moment feels wasted. Like, it's all moving towards this thing. Yeah, especially with, like, the the tercet structure, like, three lines per stanza. Like, this poem knows what it is, I feel like, you know, it knows what it's doing. Absolutely. Yeah. The word that I keep coming to is just confident. Like it, yeah, yeah. it is purposeful and strong. I mean, you, I mean, there's a million things you could point out, but I, I love all of the little wordplay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like I'm looking at stanza two, three, four, five, six, seven. Like all of the C words, curls mm-hmm. of gelatinous bacon. Gelatinous bacon is also a really strong image. Yeah. Very, yeah. The, the bacon that's in stew, you know, the bacon that's yeah. in beans, the bacon that's in greens. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And Gomino, each piece hangs in the stew like a comma, like a coconut. Like it's just, it's <laughs> it's just fully in command. It's it's beautiful to see and beautiful to read. Yeah, and then you know, the way like all that stuff comes, I, you know, I think you're you're so right of like, I can pull off a handful of these things. Like, oh, this is what I want to be doing in, in my writing, and it's doing all of those things at once. Mm-hmm. It's rules. It's yeah, rules. you're really reaching <laughs> into the writer's toolbox here. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I love I love the saving room for cheese in that stanza because <laughs> that's my favorite dessert is cheese. Yeah, like um... absolutely. I love the gut with no country. The gut with no country is great. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's and then a we came back to that. Uh, <laughs> the helpless cow comes up a couple stances down after that. I completely missed yeah. that the first time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so like a squall until you're at one end of the table only to end up at the other exactly like a helpless cow. That's what I was looking for is that because they it it's like they move in the table. Yeah. Like it like a twister. Yeah, just like the that interlocking of you know, you have the the starting image with like twister on the TV and then this this threat of I don't know if it explicitly says tornado but like like implied tornado some sort right. of storm some sort of threat and then that that even that then swirls more into the dinner table where like you're moving from sides of the table and from conversation point to conversation point. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. So good. It's a good poem. Yeah. Oh, so good. Um, let's go. Our third question is uh, for, for, for poems is uh, what's going on behind the page. Let's zoom out a little bit. Um, uh, we talked a little bit about why you picked this poem, but beyond the page, what does this poem do for you? Beyond the page, I I think it's some of what I was saying, right? Like, it's a poem written after a first book, and I think about where I was after my first book, and, you know, like, I, I didn't know if I would write another book of poems. In fact, I told friends that I wasn't going to write another book of yeah. poems. It just really... felt like, yeah, I mean, it took you know, 30 years to write the first one and publish it. Right, right. And the idea that I was expected to do that again in, you know, three or four years, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. But wild to me, especially because, I mean, it, it, it reminds me a little bit of how I felt when I was in college, which was like everything that I had been taught was about getting to college. And I had yeah. been giving no guidance about what to do in college or post-college, right? right? And I feel the same way about writing. You know, I I felt like I had pretty strong guidance about what I wanted my first book to be and how I could publish it. But the idea of, but, you know, I, I felt like I had very little guidance for what a second book could look like. Mm, yeah. um, and so... Yeah, I was just like, I think I've said what I needed to say in poems. I'll probably still write individual poems, but the idea of like collecting poems felt very, I just had no idea what that would even look like. Eventually the answer came to me, but um, yeah, so I think I'm still kind of pulled to these poems that are written after projects that are, that are, explorations of what an artist could look like you know mm, sure yeah for sure i love that I, love, I, we, I talk a lot about like yeah figuring out how to like live as an artist figuring out how to like you know you finish one project and like i for, for me it's like i don't know what to do with my life other than start another project you know <laughs> like that sort of thing now i haven't had a book published so it's it's a little bit different but um but i i definitely get that that fear of like yeah, I'm supposed to like do all this again. Like I'm supposed to, you want more words from me? Are you kidding? Like, you know, yeah, I the thing already. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. You know, I, I think a pretty common, I don't know, poet ism is how there's that feeling sometimes of, like you finish one poem and you're like, Oh my gosh, that was, that was work. That took time. You feel good about it. You know, and whenever we do occasionally feel good about a finished poem, but I think like stretching that idea to a whole book, I very much get you on how that feels daunting, you know, and like, like you said, there's not a clear roadmap of what that looks like. What's interesting to hear you say about there again is, is you weren't sure one, if there was going to be poems or what a collection would even look like. I so often hear some other people say like the, their book is coming out and they are like already way down the line on their next project. So it sounds like that's not the case for you. Um, how, how deep, if at all, if you're willing to talk about it, do you feel with the novel and what's coming up next? Oh, I'm very, I'm not deep at all. I'm at okay. the shallow end of the novel. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like, I, I have the plot of the novel kind of broadly mapped out. Um, and I have, the beginning of the first chapter written, but it's, okay. it's a long way. Um, but my plan is to kind of 
do a little bit of research and and really try and get get some work done on it uh, over the next few months. Cool, for sure. Cool. So I I wanted to ask about Latin next, and this seems like a, a, a way to do it. Did you put together the anthology as a way to put off writing your second book? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, so uh, Haymarket approached Felicia, Willie, and I to to edit that an- anthology before Citizen Illegal was published. So it oh, was kind of okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was in the works around the same time as I was getting ready to publish my first book. So I didn't yet know that I would feel that kind of sense of being lost yet yeah um, sure. yeah um the question i do want to ask about that was that's a great anthology i have it um i have you to thank for introducing me to melissa lozada oliva whose book is maybe the fastest book i ever reread <laughs> um, and um it's a great anthology i just wanted to know how the hell do you start, man? Like, how do you just like, do you just start like grab a notebook and like make a list of writers you like, or like, how does that even happen to work on the anthology? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so it started with Willie Felicia and I kind of brainstorming a list of writers that we really wanted to make sure were in the anthology for a few different purposes. And then we did an open call, um, but honestly, the thing that made that project work was really the guidance of Maya Marshall over at Haymarket Books. Sure. Um, Maya kind of gave us a timeline and helped us kind of figure out how to roadmap it. So we got to kind of just read poems and then talk and have conversations about, you know, what what the scope of the work was and how we could do it in a way that felt good to all of us. Nice. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I don't know. I, I know that putting together any kind of book, especially an anthology, I imagine is like really like um, daunting and overwhelming and stuff like that. But that just sounds like a dream. Just like <laughs> hanging out with your friends and talking about which poems you want to put in exactly. the book. You know? <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> it was cool. It was cool. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, with that, um, before we move on, was there anything else from um, Annalisa's poem that you wanted to hit before we moved on to yours? Um, no, I think I'm good moving. Cool, cool, cool. Let's move on to uh, your own poem then, the, uh, the main event. Let's do it. All right. So after I chose Annalisa's poem, I knew which poem I wanted to read. So this poem is called Ode to Tortillas. And I just figured, you know, Annalisa yeah. writes about enchiladas. I'll, you know, I'll share my poem. I guess a lot of my poems have food in them, but this is <laughs> this one dedicated to food. Oh, to tortillas. There's two ways to be a Mexican writer that we've discovered so far. You can be the Mexican writer who writes about tortillas, or you can be the Mexican writer who writes about croissants instead of the tortillas on their plate. Can you be a Mexican writer if you're allergic to corn? There's two ways to be a Mexican writer that are true and tested. You can write about migration or you can write about migration. Can you be a Mexican writer if you never migrated, if your family never migrated? There's two ways to be a Mexican writer. You can translate from Spanish or you can translate to Spanish or you can refuse to translate altogether. There's only one wound in the Mexican writer's imagination, and it's a wound of the chancla. It's a wound of Bidia being sold out at the taco truck. It's a wound of too many dolores and not enough dollars. It can be argued that these are all chanclasos. Even death is a chanclaso. There's only one miracle gifted to Mexicans, and it is the miracle of never running out of cheap beer. It's the miracle of never running out of bad jokes. There's infinite ways to eat a tortilla, made in the ancient ways by hand and warmed in a comal, made with corn or with Taco Bell plastic. What about flour tortillas? Flour tortillas count if you ask San Antonio. My people, I am poly with the tortillas. You can eat tortillas with your hands or roll them up and dip them in caldo like my mom does. 
You can eat them with a fork and knife like my bougie cousins do. What bougie cousins? I made them up for the purpose of this poem. You can eat tortillas and tacos or warmed up by microwave and drizzled with butter. Tortillas con arroz, tortillas con frijoles. Tortillas flipped by hand or tortillas flipped with a spatula. Tortillas with eggs for breakfast. Tortillas fried and sprinkled with sugar for dessert. Hard shell tortillas. Gluten-free tortillas for our mixed family. We are still discovering new ways to fold a tortilla, to cut a tortilla up, to transform a tortilla into new worlds, to feed each other with tortillas. My people, if I have children, I will teach them about tortillas, but I'm sure they want McDonald's. What a poem, man. That's a poem. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that is, yeah, that, that one rules. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there's, oh, man. Okay, yeah, let's just, let's just continue. Why, why, why'd you pick this one out of, out of the many ones in this book to bring to us today? Uh, I guess you said because of the food, but anything else beyond the, beyond food? Yeah, I mean, I just feel like it's in conversation with Annalisa's poem. For sure. Um, and so I, I thought it made sense to bring this one. You know, we talked a lot about nostalgia. I think there's a certain, like, a certain current of nostalgia that I'm also kind of trying to to subvert in a way, you know, yeah. like, yeah. in terms of thinking about what is what does it mean to be, you know, quote-unquote authentic. And so... Yeah, I, I just thought it, and it's also like a really fun one to read. So those are Absolutely. kind of my motivations for bringing it. Absolutely, for sure. Um, I always, I always hesitate to ask something like this because I feel like, I don't know, process questions are always hard to to respond to. But if you can think back to this particular poem, is this one that came out pretty quickly, or like needed a lot of work to get to where you wanted it to be? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember exactly where I was when I wrote this poem. I love that. Um, I was on a on a writing retreat okay. where a friend of mine, the two of us got an Airbnb in Manhattan. And mm-hmm. so we just spent a weekend kind of reading and writing. And on that particular day, we had huevos rancheros for breakfast. So we had tortillas for breakfast. And I was just thinking about, like, why I had, like, a couple questions kind of on my mind as I was eating tortillas, right? Like, one was, how come there aren't that many poems about tortillas, (laughs) even though it's such a, like, such an important staple in, like, the Mexican-American, Mexican diet? And then two... I had, I, I was thinking of, I, I just, just like, all right, what, I'm going to make it my challenge to write a poem about tortillas and then, but also to kind of use it as an opportunity to think about like, I don't know, I just had this idea about like what, about authenticity and how to kind of, yeah, like I said, undermine some of those ideas about what does it mean to be real or authentic and yeah. can you, can you be authentic if you don't engage with tortillas if you do choose croissants over tortillas um so those were just some of like the the things that were kind of swimming in my head but at the at the heart of it all was like i was eating tortillas and i was like i'm gonna try and write a poem about tortillas uh but yeah the poem came out pretty quick i finished it probably in a couple of hours and um got it published like two months later. So it did not oh, take nice. very long at all. <laughs> That's the dream. Yeah. I love it. I love there's um, you talk about confidence with Annalisa's poem, but like, I feel like yeah. there's, there's a great confidence here with, especially with the, um, it, you know, you open with like this, this kind of riff on what it means to be a Mexican writer, um, which I was reading this book around the time um, Chen Chen had one of his uh, Twitter threads about like, a white reader at a, or a white reader at a reading and be like, like asking, I don't know, asking some, some silly question that white people ask and just being like, you know what, 
what, what, what do you want from me as an immigrant writer kind of thing? And like, I think there's this like real strong sense in this poem to be like, like, just like, here's where I'm at. Tortillas are good, you know? And then like, you get into all this other stuff. Yeah. I think there's a real confidence to that too. Yeah. I, there's, there's a way this piece, I think like with that sense of like playfulness, that's like clearly here kind of like sets me up to think of like, this might be one kind of poem. And then it's actually, it's like, here's some real nagging questions in here. Um, Mm -hmm. Like you said, to subvert kind of those expectations to subvert what people might think about authenticity. And I, I love that. I think particularly here about your work in general, the way you're able to kind of like, you know, fluctuate within this one poem, you know, between something that's like really funny, that's playful, that's the language is, 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 is doing stuff for me. Um, But I know, I mean, similar to what you're saying about, Analysia's work of the rigors here, you know, mm. you are asking bigger questions and you're making me think. Um, and God, I don't know. This is what we do. We gush over poems. <laughs> <laughs> this we, one's a delight. The this book's is what a we delight. do. We kind of talk until we're just like, doesn't this rule? <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's burrow in. Let's 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 get a little deeper. Um, what's the uh, what's the move in your own poem? What's what are you most proud of in this in this poem? What I'm most proud of is, you know, probably the use of, like, rhetorical questions. Yeah. And specifically, um, the poem, the questions in parentheses. And right. for me, my favorite moment is when, like, I interrogate myself and, you know, reveal the truth, which is that some of these things are just totally made up. Yeah, yeah, right? I love that. <laughs> so you can eat them with a fork and knife like my bougie cousins do. What bougie cousins? I made them up for the purpose of this poem. Uh, like, I just, I, I just love, I love that I both made up my bougie cousins and then, <laughs> like, revealed to people that I made it up. Yeah. You convinced me. I was definitely like, man, someone somewhere is eating tortillas with a fork and knife right now. I'm 100% sure. I mean, people eat everything with a fork and knife. You know what I mean? Like, I've seen people eat pizza with a fork and knife. I've seen people eat hamburgers with a fork and knife. So I'm sure somewhere someone is cutting up a tortilla. Right in, now. In, in, like, you know, yeah. By the carnitas, by the pineapple, by the, you know, <laughs> Yeah, one piece at a time. I'm sure it's happening. <laughs> uh, no, that move rules. Again, what a like confident moment in the poem. I, um, my favorite to... rhetorical question is, what about flour tortillas? Because yeah. I was wondering, I, I'm, I'm a big flour tortilla head. <laughs> Sorry, Pop, yeah. I cut you off. <laughs> no, you're good, you're good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I must have been thinking about San Antonio. I wrote this early on in the pandemic, and... Uh, there was, for a while, I would get together with some writers over Zoom. Um, one was Lorianne Guerrero, who's based in San Antonio. Mm. Um, others were mostly based in California. One was at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. Um, and we'd get together, not to write, but to like listen to oldies and have drinks. Ugh, uh, and it was, a, it was a good time. So I must have been thinking about Lorianne when... Uh, when I was like, what about flour tortillas? <laughs> and you know, also, I really love San Antonio and, you know, flour tortillas beautiful. are, yeah, it's, they really make good food out of flour tortillas. So shout out to them. Yeah. yeah I've been wanting to get back to San Antonio for forever. I went in high school and I haven't been back. The miracle of running out, of, never running out of bad jokes. You have a lot of, uh, a lot of poetics of bad jokes in this book. Um, <laughs> And I'm a dad, so we love our bad jokes. We love our bad jokes on this podcast. Because <laughs> there's there's real humor in these poems, but then there's also your bad jokes in these poems. Um, how, how do you uh, – do you have any kind of special trick for navigating dropping those, or is it just this is what feels right? Love bad jokes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't have any special advice. I think part of what I've maybe learned is – so, for example, right, like, sometimes poets will ask me, like, how, 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 do you get to, how do you get to a place where you feel like you can include humor in your writing? 
And I think the answer for me for all of this is like, you have to be audacious enough to do it and try it. And if mm. you, and usually if you're confident enough, if you're willing to take the risk, then, then, you know, then the reader will take the risk with you. So, um, so for me, like including bad jokes, it's just like, I'm, I'm willing to accept if they fail, if it doesn't move people the way I want it to, but for it it's worth trying, you know? So yeah, I think it, for me, it's just like, there's no how necessarily. Like I just, I, if I like a bad joke, then I'm going to, to include it somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. I love, I love hearing you say that, um, that word audacious and, you know, to think of that as, as like something to continue to aspire to in my own right, you know, like making that an intentional, like, let's get out of my comfort zone let's make that if i think i should make that leap let's make that leap you know yeah exactly yeah um chris i don't know why that question made me think of this but jose i'm just thinking like you said of coming back from touring on it um done some readings talked to some people i'm always curious like at that point and maybe it's a little too early but about two months out from the book being out in the world is there anything where you're like why aren't people talking about this part of the book? Like, are there like questions you're like, why am I not getting something on this? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if there are things that people are not talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess. Let me take a look at the table of contents. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I feel like people have been asking me questions about a lot of these different poems. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I feel like any one section has been kind of disregarded. I will say that um, I feel like I haven't gotten a ton of questions about. Mexican Heaven, which is like a continuation of the poem from right. Simpson and Legal. Yeah. 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 I love and, that. It's like a, a bridge between the two books. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I'll include some kind of Mexican Heaven in everything I write, just like because one, because it's like a place of imagination that I enjoy coming back to. And I think also reveals something about where I'm at with each collection or yeah. each project. Yeah. yeah um, for sure. So, you know, for me, like one of the things in reading the, the Mexican heaven poems in this book versus citizen illegal is like the poems are just feel like they're rejecting the premise altogether a lot more. Mm, yeah. um, they're a lot more angry, I would say. And so, those are some of the things that I've been thinking about. It's just like, there, like you read, right? Like I had this intention of writing love poems for the homies. And yet the language kept veering into places of fear and loneliness and anger mm. and trying to like reconcile those two um, was hard. It was hard, especially during a pandemic to, to try and make that work. So yeah, the Mexican heaven poems feel like particularly revel revelatory to me as I like look back on promises of gold for sure yeah the Mexican heaven poems always remind they kind of remind me of um in uh Eve Ewing's Electric Arches book with the where she does the handwriting sections of the poems where it's like you know it'll be like description of like a you know I don't know like a usually something terrible like a kid getting harassed by the cops or something and then it's just like a a handwritten where like their bike becomes like the bike's an ET and like flies away or something like that there's there's like this like this fantasy of like this aspirational place you can go where, you know, like every, everything's all right. It's, it's, you know, it's Mexican heaven. Um, and, uh, um, the fact that the, the things you're frequently describing in those Mexican heaven poems feel like they shouldn't be that out of reach, you know? And that's like part of where the anger comes from a lot. Um, yeah, I, I love those poems. Um, yeah. Thank you. 
Should we get back into uh, let's get back into oh, tortillas? What's uh, what's going on? We've touched on a lot uh, yeah, in these questions like already with there. pandemic stuff, but beyond the page, anything else beyond the page other than yeah, speak on writing during the pandemic maybe because um, I know that was hard for everybody writing during during lockdowns. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it felt really hard and impossible. I mean, that's that's why we kind of uh, booked that writing retreat to try and establish some sort of rhythm. I think, yeah, it was really hard at first. I think it wasn't until really maybe late 2021 when I could start to build the routine. I, yeah. I, I feel like I'm, I'm a writer that really thrives with, with routine and discipline. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I remember before Citizen Illegal, my writing routine was to, you know, I had a particular coffee shop in Chicago over on Milwaukee where I would write every morning before work. And I would, you know, I, I just like made that part of my day. Um, and then after Citizen Illegal, when I was touring more, it felt like it took me a while to start writing again, in part because I was always on the road and you know, I thought I would have more time to write being on planes and in hotel rooms, but those places ultimately did not feel the most conducive to my writing. And then, mm, um, and then with the pandemic, it was like having to find a routine all over again in the midst of, of, a, you know, what was a really scary place and time. So ultimately I just kind of figured out how to do it. Um, yeah, I like to write in the mornings you know, like we talked about, like usually this would be around the time that I have dedicated to writing. And I like to write in the mornings because they're the time when I feel least like burdened by all of the anxieties that I feel. Mm, um, sure. So by the time the evening comes around, I'm I'm just thinking about like who I owe an email to and, <laughs> right, you right. know, what I have to do the next day. And what am I going to cook tomorrow? Like, there's just all of these kind of, you know, not not useless questions, but they're not necessarily the most creative, yeah, like generative questions for yeah. me. So in the morning, I feel, questions. yeah, yeah. In the morning, I feel like I have more space to really tap into a generative space that feels unencumbered by those questions because I know I still have the rest of the day to kind of get to yeah. those questions yeah. i'm the same way man i feel like the morning like unfolds before me and the, therefore the blank page is approachable you know like yeah mm -hmm. uh, what about yeah. you do you like your morning or writing or no, morning or night writing person i am still trying to find my, my routine <laughs> man. i conceptually i'm with you both where i like the morning is writing time um and i am hoping to establish more of a routine like that this summer but we'll see I got to ask, though, it's okay if it's a secret. Can we know what your Chicago coffee shop was where you were doing writing? Um, it closed. Oh, no. no. Yeah, it closed. Let me see if I can figure out. I was working at Young Chicago Authors at the time. Right. So was, sure, yeah. Right near there. I think I know which one you're talking about. Do you? Because I what know one that called? closed right around there. I don't remember the name. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what the name was. I think I might have included it in the acknowledgments oh, yeah. of Citizen of the Right. I just found some notes from when I was writing in a hotel in the back of my <laughs> copy of Citizen Illegal. <laughs> I, I do not remember the name of it. It's killing me. Right. But, yeah, it was it was on Milwaukee between probably – Division and Thomas Street, one of those places. And oh, I can picture that. Like, I feel like it had a pretty spacious interior. They had um, an outdoor patio. Ooh. They had a, a backyard, not an outdoor patio. They had cool, a backyard. backyard. That's the thing about that was open you can during get the summer. Places with backyards in it. <laughs> they had outstanding sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> What's the what's the, what's the best uh, sandwich? The best sandwich they had that no one can ever eat. I really any. like, I really like the tuna melt that they did. Ooh, love a good tuna melt. <laughs> love a tuna melt. Uh, 
All right, I tried. We took a stop to, yeah. to edit out most of that. But that's all right. We'll, we'll work maybe we'll it. uncover it at some point. <laughs> and that that that's actually fitting for our podcast because, um, yeah, once we once we get 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 too lost in the weeds with the poems, it's a good sign to pivot to basketball. So we um, we always end up every episode with a basketball question. Obviously, Jimmy Butler hasn't won his Finals MVP yet, um, right? And I usually try to tie the basketball question into stuff we've been talking about we've been talking about confidence and jimmy butler certainly exudes confidence but i'm, I'm gonna pivot a little bit um let's go back to the 90s bulls um mm-hmm. first two-parter 91 93 championships or the 96 to 98 championships um you know for me it's 96 to 98 same here and i mean in part just because of like where I was, I don't really remember the first two championships. Yeah. My, I remember the third championship, um, and that one in particular was really important to me because that was one of the ways that my dad and I bonded. Yeah. But 96 to 98, I watched every single one of those games. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, all, I mean, this is a side note, but I guess an, an argument for 91, 93 is um, – my second grade talent show, okay. me and a couple of my buddies recreated John Paxson's shot. Incredible. On like, a, <laughs> on like one of those, you know, uh, yeah. plastic rims for kids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Amazing. We had, we had one of those CDs that the Bulls would release with like, yeah, you know, like all of the songs that they would play during the games and then yeah. clips from the audio, like the calls, right? And so we right. played the call. We had someone pass it, pass it, pass it, goes out to John Paxson, shoot the ball. That's incredible. So we, we were – we really – yeah, the Chicago Bulls, super important. But 96 through 98, I was locked in. I knew all of the players up and down the bench. I, you know, I looked up all – I would go to like the corner store to read the Sun Times so I could read yeah. what the writers were saying about the Bulls. Um, like those were just way more real to me than the first three championships. Right, for sure. Yeah. Right. I blame that second championship run for getting me to move to Chicago in, in, in all honesty. <laughs> <laughs> so no, that's actually perfect because then my, my second question that I like to ask uh, diehard Bulls fans is Is there a bench player? from that run that you feel like is unheralded. Now I know like everyone on that team has been mythologized to death, especially with like the last dance and stuff like that. But I, I always feel personally like Bison Daly doesn't get enough credit for 97. <laughs> um, do you have a, do you have a favorite bench player on the 97 to 98 or 96 to 98 teams? 96 to 98 teams, a favorite bench player. Um, of those guys, I got to say that I, I really always enjoyed Judge Bushler. Yes. Judge could hit some shots, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and Judge was important to me because I was really bad at most parts of basketball, but I kind of taught sure. myself how to shoot like a corner jump shot. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. There you go. And so before, like, uh, before people started using the phrase like 3 and D and, yeah, and yeah. talking about that, like, I was like, Judd, Judd Bushler made the league just hitting corner jump shots and playing defense. So I was like, I got to teach myself how to shoot a corner jump shot and <laughs> like try hard and hustle on defense. So right. that was kind of like time with the corner that was, jump shot. That was my vision. <laughs> I was there. Uh, and so, so I really liked Judd Bushler's game, but also like, I remember Randy Brown had a huge yeah. dunk one of those yeah. years. I that, think I know exactly what dunk you're talking about. Changed, yeah. feel like it changed everything. So I mean, honestly, that whole team was was really all those years we had just like really great bench guys all around. Right. Yeah. I love that you bring up Judd Bushler. So, me and Chris, we have a group of friends um, from when we were living when I was still in Chicago. We went to college together. We played basketball afterwards. You know, and, and similar. We're kind of all around the same age, and, and I think like you, most of us that ninety six to ninety eight. That's when like our love of basketball crystallized. And I don't remember who brought it up first, but I know I, I bought this like 96 Bulls magazine, you know, at the grocery store, something after the championship where they're just kind of like glorifying everybody. 
And there's this picture in there of a fan with a sign that says Judd Bushler for president. And I brought I this that up. picture, yeah. And Chris remembers it. Or other, like we had like four or five guys who like all knew this thing. Wow. <laughs> so Judd Bushler for president just comes up in my mind regularly. But I also love if you rewatch the fourth quarter, uh, 98 game six. The fourth quarter is just starting. Isaiah Thomas is one of the announcers. And he says, Judd Busher's in the game. He might be the difference maker. <laughs> I love it. There so games where was, you know? That's just true. This is true. <laughs> I love it. Shout out to Judd Bushler. Shout Absolutely. out to Judd Bushler. <laughs> Please do, do not run for president. Don't run for president. That's a bad idea. Yeah. We don't need that now. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, Jose, uh, Jose, thank you so much for being here today. Um, thank you for being so generous with your time. Uh, this was a blast, man. What a delight. What a joy. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome, awesome. All right, our music is done by Brennan Johnson. Our art is by A.M. Strickland. We'll talk to you guys next month.